This is episode 26 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is someone that I really aspire to be. I think all of us as speech pathologists should aspire to be someone like her. It is Diane Barr, and she is a visionary with a mission. I know everyone's been asking, when are you going to have PEDS info on? When are you going to have PEDS info? And it's coming. Um, Diane's the first of three people I have scheduled for the next couple months, so we will we will be getting some more PEDS info in. So Diane has been practicing for more than 30 years. She has treated children and adults with feeding, motor speech, and mouth function problems. While she is a speech-language pathologist by training, she also has honed her skills as a feeding therapist, published author, international speaker, university instructor, and business owner. Diane co-owns Ages and Stages with her husband and business manager, Joe. She is also a mother and a grandmother. Now, Di is one of those people that is just beyond generous with her time and her information, and I know you always see on SIG 13, she's always giving out these extremely detailed responses with lots of references, and it's great. I think we just need more people like this in our field. You know, everyone's kind of so guarded in their information, and, you know, I just love that she makes it so widely available. When I, you know, just asked her for some notes for this episode, she sent me some of her book chapters for free, so... I mean, she's incredible. So Diane, thank you so much for sharing your time and your brains with all of us. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I know, you know, I don't work with babies, but I learned so much, especially being a mother of a kid with feeding issues. Um, but she's, she's incredible. So I hope you all really, really enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. All right, welcome back, everyone. Happy end of January. Yay. I thought we were kind of out of this funky snow mess, but then of course we got dumped on with snow again today. So it never fails, but hope we're all finally getting out of this winter season. I hope everyone's escaped the flu. I know it's been horribly vicious. Um, I just want to say thank you so much to all of you. We are close to 23,000 subscribers now. Like I said, I was so excited to get to 20 and then now we're at 23,000. I don't know where all you extra people came from, but just know I'm super grateful for all of you, and this has just been the coolest thing ever, and I want to especially thank our sponsor, EndoHD. You guys are great for helping us keep the lights on around here, um, but if you guys do want to help to contribute to this podcast, uh, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Swallow Your Pride. Uh, that just helps to keep the lights on around here, helps me from going absolutely nuts, helps me get some people to help work on this podcast so we can keep cranking them out every week for all of you. So thank you again for all of your support. And I do want to say this episode with Diane Barr is just so awesome. Like I said, she's so generous in the information that she gives. So don't forget to download the show notes. Um, You can text SYP026 to 44222, or we have bit.ly links for every episode now. So go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash SYP podcast 026. And my assistant created an outline. And then Diane also gave you her awesome presentation that she just did at ASHA. That was like a huge success. Um, So she gave you that whole presentation plus the entire literature review that she's done. So if you guys that work with babies and feeding issues say you have no references, like, I don't know what to tell you because this woman, she found it all for you. So I really hope that this episode is super helpful to you guys and I do want to read an iTunes review this week. We are so close to 400 iTunes reviews, you guys. And now since we have close to 23,000 subscribers, I think that it's time to get a little more iTunes reviews because that's what keeps us on the air. So I'm not begging you to go leave an iTunes review, but I'm just asking you so kindly if you could. So it would help me out a ton, help keep this podcast going. Really appreciate it. Helps keep Apple happy so they keep playing us. So that's that. So this week's this week's Swallow Your Pride review is by New Creation. New Creation says, read my mind. 
I am so fortunate to have come across Swallow Your Pride. Teresa and her prestigious guests have answered a lot of questions I've asked myself for years. What exactly am I supposed to be looking for as I sit here with this patient during this meal? I felt more like a lunch bully than an SLP, shouting orders like, slow down, that was two bites, now what are you supposed to do? I'm at a new facility that has and is willing to buy the items and equipment that I need for therapy. I love the handouts for downloads with links to research articles. I look forward to future podcasts and increasing my knowledge in this ever-growing phenomenal field. Well, New Creation, we are happy to have you. I'm so glad you're learning new things. Like I said, everybody else, please go leave a review if you can. I would superly, greatly appreciate it. And I hope you guys love this episode with Di. She's just awesome. Hi, Diane. Hi. How are you? I'm fine, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on here. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, I did a little intro of you in the beginning, but can you tell tell everyone who you are? My name is Diane Barr. I've been a speech language pathologist since 1980. Uh, started out working in the school system for three years, and then after that became a medical speech language pathologist by working at the Maryland School for the Blind, Maryland General Bryn Mawr Rehab Center. Uh, then I went to the university setting and I worked in their clinics for quite a while, and now I'm in private practice. So that's kind of my history. I've been around for, and I've been doing uh, feeding, motor speech, and mouth development, mouth function work for over 34 years. Awesome. That's great. I know when I first started this podcast, it was, you know, more tailored towards adults because that's what I work with. And so many Mm -hmm. people were like, can we talk about peds? Can we talk about babies? So (laughs) thank you so much for agreeing to come on and and talk about this stuff because we all know how important it is. Right. And I, I have worked with every age. So my youngest children are babies who are having trouble breastfeeding. And then my oldest clients have been adults age 99. There you go. All right. That really is the whole gamut. That is the whole gamut. (laughs) All right. So what specifically do you want to talk about today? Well, I sent you uh, information on the presentation Christy Gatto and I did at ASHA, and it was quite successful. We had many people come, and it was actually the last day of ASHA, the last afternoon, so we were very pleased. Um, And the reason Uh, we did this presentation is that we feel that we need to, whenever we're going to develop some programs in an area, which uh, Christy and I are both into doing, that we need to um, have a, a literature review and a good research base. And so we want to look at birth to age seven mouth development and function, and how to keep that on track with children. And the reason that we want to do this is because we are getting so many children on our caseloads who wouldn't have been on our caseloads years ago. So we're looking at why that's happening. And we hear a lot about things like tongue tie today, for example, and um, Babies aren't getting getting the belly time they need, so they, our kids don't have the postural control they need. So you need good postural control in the body in order to have good fine motor control in the mouth. And so we started going through the literature, and as I sent you, we had twenty pages. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of literature. That yeah, that's in, that's incredible. So I guess let's start at birth. So. Okay. So we can, let's start a uh, typical mouth development. Okay. And so um, we're going to talk about uh, in utero structure. Uh, so even before birth. And so we know that the mouth is developing very early during the first trimester. I'm not going to go over all the details. That's in our presentation, by the way. And if anybody would like our presentation and you can't find it on the ASHA website, just email me. And I am happy to give it to you. Awesome. And, and Diane wrote some incredible, we've got some great show notes to post too. So all her information will be in there. So this will all be available to everyone. Great. And my email is di, like Diane, bar, B-A-H-R at cox.net. And I'm sure you'll have that posted as well. So I don't mind people contacting me at all. 
so we know in the first trimester, we have a lot of mouth development going on. And also during that time, that's the time when there are things happening like our tongue ties are, are starting to happen. And those seem to be happening. They run more in boys than girls. Um, they seem to be hereditary. <laughs> and uh, it seems to be a matter of some tissue that's collagen type tissue that's not being resorbed into the body. So it's not only that is it during that first trimester that we have really good facial and mouth development and that's when we end up with cleft palates if we don't have that, for example, but some other things are now happening that we really didn't know before that seem related to the tongue ties that we're seeing today. And does that, does that include lift ties as well, Di, or is that a yeah. different? Okay. No, yes, I, there's not much research on lip tie or buckle tie. Okay, because my son had a lip tie, so. Right, and often uh, the lip ties are not revised unless you really can't get the lip up and the child can't latch, or it's causing their two front teeth uh, to be apart. And so, but, but there's not a lot of research on it, but we do know, at least I observed this for years. I've been teaching since 1989, uh, starting with, you know, a graduate course and then moving into continuing education. And I know that there seems to be what we, what I call a freedom system. So if you have that freedom that is restricted under the tongue, always look for the lip at least. I haven't seen a lot of buckle ties there over on the side uh, near the cheeks, closer to the cheeks. Um, but there are people that have them revised because they get in the way of oral hygiene, for example, or food management. There's a lot of not only oral development going on um, and oral function in utero, because even as early as like the third to fifth month, of gestation, we're seeing sucking, we're seeing swallowing, we're seeing oral functioning, getting organized. And so the presentation has a lot of specifics for you in terms of the reflexes and all of that. There's also a lot of brain development and neural control um, going on during that time, which of course extends to after birth. <laughs> and then, <clears throat> At birth, we want to see certain structures. And so a lot of this information originally uh, comes from my mentor, uh, Suzanne Evans-Morris, who is the co-author of the book Prefeeding Skills. And she is the only person I know who has done a longitudinal study on typical feeding development and mouth development. So when you look at the slide, uh, if you get my presentation to look at, uh, you'll see the structures at birth. And so we know there's very little space in the oral cavity and that, you know, and there's very little space between the throat and the mouth. And that really protects the baby for swallowing as a newborn. But as the baby grows, a one month old is different than a newborn, a three-month-old is different than a one-month-old. I'm writing a new book that has a lot of these specifics. My previous book, the 2010 book, has a lot of specifics. Um, everybody knows it as the nobody ever told me or my mother that book, but <laughs> I'm writing a new one that has even more specifics so we can keep our babies on track. And so we really need a nice flat, palate or roof of the mouth. And if that palate's already gone high and narrow, one of the things people need to look at is, is there a tongue tie? Because the, when a baby's born, the roof of the mouth is really flexible. And so if the tongue is resting in that palate, it helps to keep a nice palate shape, then the palate doesn't go high and narrow. The problem with a palate going high and narrow is that your palate is also the floor of your nose or your nasal area. So when the palate goes high and narrow, it affects nasal breathing. And so uh, one of the things we talked about in this presentation was why it's healthy to do nasal breathing and why it's unhealthy to have mouth breathing. 
And so we can, we can come back to that, but not only should the palate be relatively flat and it should never go beyond, uh, you know, just a slight arch. And the, like I said, the tongue fills the mouth to keep that shape, but also the mother's breasts through breastfeeding is drawn deeply into the baby's mouth and this helps to keep the palate shape. Um, a baby, this, and I just saw a baby today um, where the question was, is it a tongue tie? And yes, there was tightness under the baby's tongue uh, and the baby wasn't getting his tongue over the lower gum during sucking. And mom had been having quite a bit of problems and pain with breastfeeding. And so his two lactation consultants came here with him and the mom and we video the whole thing and mom takes it with her on an SD card. <laughs> so I don't keep any of that. They have it to take home with them. And what I found with him was that even though he was almost full term, so he was close to term like 30, 38 and a half weeks, he did not have a full set of sucking pads. And sucking pads are being, you know, I, I don't know why people aren't looking at them like they used to but sucking pads are balls of fat in a baby's, che baby's cheeks that are born, I'm sorry, that uh, develop toward the end of pregnancy. And so a lot of our babies are born just a little bit early. And I always check to see if there are those balls of fat because they provide the lateral support in the mouth, especially for breastfeeding. That's so wild, yeah. Yeah, my, my son was a little bit early but he did have a high arch too. And yeah, we had a hell of a time breastfeeding. So now I'm, now I'm wondering about those, those side pads. Yeah. Well, and with this baby today, we were able to take, you know, use a dancer hold, which is carefully applied cheek support. And we were able to bring, cause he had one missing sucking pad and, and just a thin one on this side. Once we brought that in and we had done some jaw work, and so I do a lot of jaw work with my little babies with just the fleshy part of my finger. I have an e-course if anybody wants it, <laughs> I'll give it to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, awesome. That you can use in practice. Um, so I don't sell it, I used to, but I don't any longer. And I just have uh, the parents doing the basic bite response near the back molar area and the child chews on the finger. Uh, there on each side until we get nice, even balance of the jaw. And, and it's so simple. It almost yeah, yeah. silly, but you know, we're having all these tongue, um, tongues clipped <laughs> and then moms are still having trouble breastfeeding. So I think these other two pieces are really important. And that's why I'm writing the new book. So, you know, that everybody will look at whether the sucking pads are full, because if they're not there, it's almost impossible to breastfeed. Um, and then are they, what's happening in the jaw? Do they have good balanced jaw strength by stimulating the, the phasic bite near, you know, the back molar area? That's super interesting, Diane. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think so. I've yeah. been doing that. I've been in baby's mouths, like I said, a really long time. So people will say to me, oh, I want you to treat my child because you're the best. And I say, no, I am not the best. I'm a good therapist, but I have a lot of practice at what I've done because not many people have had the chance to be in and around baby's mouths for as long as I have, or as long as Suzanne Morris or Marsha Dunkline have. So you know, we're, we're really lucky that way. So at birth, babies also, uh, in, you know, they have certain structures. And of course you can look at the information in your handout or you can get the slide from me and look at it. I'm not gonna go over all of those structures, but as in terms of functions, um, there is a therapist this week just asking me what do I do? I got this child that's really involved. And that's who I worked with initially, children with cerebral palsy. Uh, we had a clinic at Loyola where we treated lots of kids and babies with Down syndrome. But I always want to look at the oral reflexes. And so uh, all three of my books, my textbook from 2001, my 2010 parent professional book, and the current book, 
they have the oral reflexes in there because if you have a child who's having difficulties, sometimes you'll find out you know, where those reflexes are off and then you can capitalize on the reflexes. Um, so, you know, of course they're sucking. Well, actually it's a suckling reflex. Children are born sucking, by the way. Um, so sucking is volitional and they're born doing it because they've been doing it in utero. And that's where the problem is. If somebody has been tongue tied, then they haven't had good sucking experience. And so even if the tongue is revised at birth, a lot of times you have to go in and do some treatment or teach the parents treatment. It's really easy stuff. It doesn't take long. And it's just fun to teach the parents to play with their, their baby's mouths. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the reflexes are important. The readiness to feed. Babies should always be nose breathers. When you breathe through your nose, there's something, and they, they can measure this right after birth. When you breathe through your nose, there's something that's produced in the body called nitric oxide, not nitrous oxide. <laughs> that would be laughing gas. But nitric oxide does a lot for the body in terms of helping the body uh, oxygen, the body and brain to um, absorb oxygen. When you breathe through your nose, the, uh, the air goes to the bottom of the lungs where we actually have um, a lot of our blood vessels where, and we oxygenate our blood. And when you breathe through the mouth, uh, it's, it, you don't get as deep of a breath. And also we see a lot of kids later on who are mouth breathers. Uh, well, first of all, their tongue isn't holding that palate shape because they're mouth breathers. And they also tend to be very sick kids. Uh, we now have good literature from uh, the ear, nose, and throat people that tell us that those are the kids that have enlarged tonsils, enlarged adenoids, in addition to structural changes in the face um, from having an open mouth. So closed mouth breathing, nose breathing, very important to do from birth. And breastfeeding is best. So, you know, I was really worried as I'm writing this new book because I don't want to turn off the parents who need to bottle feed. I mean, and so if you need to bottle feed, I give you in both of my parent professional books information on how to bottle feed the best way possible. The problem with pacifier use and bottle feeding is that they require different forces and different muscles, muscle groups than breastfeeding. And so now we actually have one research study that has looked at feeding processes down the line with children who used pacifiers and um, bottle nipples as opposed to breastfeeding. But parents, this is a no guilt conversation. And I'm sorry, my voice is a little hoarse. There's allergies. It's not the flu. Yeah, <laughs> you're allergies. fine. Yeah. We, we're, I'm in Las Vegas and it's still pretty warm and there's a lot of allergies here. So anyway, <clears throat> with breastfeeding, um, we know it's best for mouth development. We know it's ideal in terms of the muscles that are used. We know bottle feeding is a whole different process and I have that compared in you know the handout from ASHA. And I have it also in the new book and in my presentations. But not, you know, don't feel lost parents who are needing to bottle feed or bottle feed part time. You know, I talked to you about how to do the best bottle feeding experience possible and how to help the mouth, mouth develop if you're not able to breastfeed. And part of that is jaw, is jaw work. Um, we're hearing a lot about jaw work coming from many different uh, disciplines. So you asked me what my favorite article is. This one right here. It's, it's by Christian Guimano and, um, and Dr. Huang, um, Yushu Huang. Uh, but anyway, I had the pleasure of reading it uh, before publication uh, because they were looking for feedback. And um, oh, it's just a wonderful article. It's called 
from oral facial dysfunction to dysmorphism and onset of pediatric, pediatric OSA evidences. OSA is obstruct, obstructive sleep apnea. And, and they look from, and that's where I got some of my information from, although I, I looked at every article, or Christy and I looked at every article that's in that 20-page bibliography. Um, <clears throat> but that's where a lot of really good information came in terms of what's happening in utero, what's happening in young children, and what's happening all the way through adulthood. So a lot of us who have not had our airways taken care of early on, um, and there's a lot that goes into a good airway, as we get older, our airways will get smaller. And that's why adults often tend to have obstructive sleep apnea. However, we also have children with obstructive sleep apnea. And there are a couple of really good articles from the Journal of Pediatrics by, I think it's Karen Bonick, uh, that speak to that. And so um, we're just trying to keep kids as healthy as possible, beginning at a very young age. And we'd also like to keep some of these typically developing kids off of our caseloads if possible. So in the first two years of life, um, there's a lot happening in structure and function. And many people, you know, for example, I don't know about you, but um, many times I wouldn't get a referral until a child was 18 months of age. Well, they've had a lot of changes happening in terms of structure and function. By two years of age, a child should be eating pretty much like you and me. And of course, we know by two years of age, they're putting words together. And by three years of age, they're talking in sentences. And yet we have a lot of late developing speech development and a lot of late development, de developing feeding development. And I think it's because parents just don't have the information to keep their kids on track. So that's the first thing I did. I, I don't wanna scare parents and I'm gonna write, <laughs> My current book has guides, so you can only you you only need to look up by age or topic what you want to know about. Um, the this one is going to be more narrow, more on feeding, but I didn't want to scare parents by putting developmental checklists in the very beginning. But there are detailed developmental checklists, and both of my parent books are made for parents and professionals to use together. So they don't, uh, so parents don't have to be out there on their own if they feel something's gone wrong, but also they'll know because often parents only hear, oh yeah, one, one word by one year of age and two words together by two years of age, but there's so much more happening, much more happening in speech and in feeding development. And that, that was part of our presentation as well. So I've got information on what should be happening in spoon feeding, cup drinking, finger feeding, you know, at what age children should be doing things. A lot of people are um, really liking baby led weaning, Jill Rapley's work, and she's done some very good work. Um, but it's not in my opinion, I, I mean, Jill, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't want to say anything negative about your work. I think Jill's work is a big part of our puzzle because one reason kids aren't doing what they need to do, and I just read an article that's going to be on our website this month. We feature articles. Um, this one's by Stephen Lynn. Um, but anyway, uh, and he is a dentist who just wrote a book on foods and how to get good dental development through foods. One of our problems, and Dr. Kevin Boyd also talks about this, is kids not chewing early. And so in my book, the, the 2010 book, you have all the mouth development using mouth toys beginning, and appropriate mouth toys, beginning at like three months. So with Jill's work, what she did was, as far as I saw when I watched her present, was up to about six months, the babies were breastfed solely. And that's the recommendation of the World Health Organization and the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then they were introduced to whole foods, but the whole foods that she presented 
uh, were things like broccoli tops that were nicely steamed, um, pineapple that was like cut open so the child could hold it on the outside and then like munch on it in the front. And so that's, those are very good things as long as the child is safe with them. But she, you know, she wasn't handing a six month old a chicken leg. And so, <laughs> and yet some people take her work and they, you know, they think that's what they should do. So Suzanne Morris, having done a longitudinal study from birth to three years on feeding, she actually, and I put this in my book, it's in pre-feeding skills, uh, Marsha Dunn Klein and Suzanne's book. It's in my other book. We have, you know, we've really put discreetly what children should be doing in terms of texture. And we also feel that spoon feeding is important because after all, you do need to <laughs> to eat from a spoon. Um, but baby food products often don't tell you when to introduce foods. And so since we're waiting to six months to introduce foods, we can introduce texture sooner and safe chewing items. So for example, at six months of age, a baby can hold a soft arrowroot baby cookie with you in your hands, in their hands, and they can munch, munch, munch and get little pieces, little crumbs off of that baby cookie. So um, we don't have, and, and, and we're also thinking, I think I can speak for a lot of feeding therapists, we're also thinking that we're having a lot of problems with picky eating later on because kids aren't being introduced to tastes and textures and those kinds of things on time. So that's the real goal here of the information. And as you saw, there's a lot of literature to back it up. So speech development, that's, there's also a lot happening there. I had to really dig <laughs> from the 1950s to the 1970s and beyond for the speech development literature because most speech language pathologists only have a chart that starts at the age of two. And babies are making different kinds of sounds beginning at one month. By six months, babies in all over the world, I've taught in many areas, areas of the world, and uh, so people of different languages also agree, that by six months, a baby should have a lot of their vowels. And, um, and we're not seeing that. And so that's one of the things the new book is really looking at. We, we do feel that children aren't getting enough different positions of their bodies so that then the fine motor function doesn't come in the mouth. And, and parents are scared to death to put their kids um, on in any other position but on their backs. And yet the American Academy of Pediatrics highly recommends belly time. And the little boy today, when he came in, he's arching all over the place. And, um, you know, we did some therapeutic handling with him. I have the good fortune of also being um, a fully trained body worker, even though I don't use that. Uh, I, I have another body worker who does the body work with the children. But I did that in order to learn, you know, so I went to massage school, I learned craniosacral work, I learned myofascial release, so that when I work with babies and they're working with body workers, you know, I can see what's going on. And this baby, after just a little bit of positioning on the belly, on the side, helping him to bring his hands together, bring his hands to his mouth, we did some jaw work, we did some tongue cupping and grooving, we gave the cheek support because he didn't have adequate um, sucking pads. And, you know, by the end, mom had her finger in there, could feel the difference. She breastfed after the oral preparation. It didn't take a long time. Uh, she breastfed on one side, then mom came down and did the oral preparation. She breastfed on the other side. She no longer had the pain in the breast. Her breast wasn't misshapen like it had been before. She was having, you know, plugged milk ducts. Um, so a lot of those things will be straightened out. But back to speech. In that first two years, a lot is happening. And so that's also in one of the slides. It's not just that kids put two words together <laughs> by two years. <laughs> and then uh, there's two to seven year mouth and airway development also listed. 
and two to seven year speech development listed in, in the handout. So you can see all the specifics. Like I said, to get the speech information, I had to go through so much old literature. You know, we just don't have the money for research today. That's part of it. And there's not the interest, I think, in child development because a lot of, not that people aren't interested in child development, but back between the 50s and the 70s, people were really into child development. And so that's why a lot of the research is back there. I mean, they when I went to school, I don't know if you had to do this, but we had just become speech language pathologists. So one of my assignments was to um, record a child every week for an hour, play with them, who was around the age of two. And so we had like 14 weeks before and after the age of two, you know, 14 week period. And I'm treating a boy right now who wasn't talking at all at 18 months. And now he's two and he's putting three words together. Uh, and, you know, it's just knowing what to do to get that to happen. But anyway, we've done a lot of work with him since he was 18 months to get to this point. And his father was talking today about the language explosion that happens around two years. Well, we in school had to sit down and transcribe everything that child said for an hour over 14 hours, 14 weeks. And then we had to uh, look at it for something. So I, I looked at verbs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we had to evaluate it for something. And so a lot of that has kind of, because our field I think has become so broad, a lot of people have lost sight of some of um, this, you know, all that or all that's happening during that time. There's a lot happening. So that's another reason Christy and I went back through all the research. Uh, and then I have what a face appearance should look like. Um, and our literature in, in the handout, if you guys ask for it, um, our literature only says by six years of age, a child should look a certain way. But I'm here to tell you a lot of that jaw growth and it's been um, confirmed by many people now, especially the dental folks, that a lot of jaw growth occurs in that first year and second year, but particularly that first year. And so if kids aren't crawling and they're not doing belly time and parents will say, well, he doesn't like belly time. Well, part of that, he cries if I put him on his belly. Part of that's because they're just not used to it. If you do intentional belly time, supervised belly time from the time your baby is small, or if you're a mom and like the mom today, you do laid back breastfeeding, that gravity is then helping the jaw to go forward. And so it's just so, so important. And thankfully, Michelle Price Emanuel uh, is teaching something called tummy time. <laughs> and she's training other people to teach tummy time because part of what may be happening is that kids are just spending so much time on their backs because they sleep on their backs. Then they're in containers like car seats and you know baby seats and swings. And then gravity, a lot of people don't think about the force of gravity, but you know, I'm turning 62. And <laughs> I, I understand the force of gravity more than ever <laughs> now. And so, you know, the, what's happening is babies are just spending an inordinate amount of time on their backs and then gravity's pulling the jaw back, even if there's not a tongue tied there. So we're, you know, we're really trying to make an effort at the lactation consultants, the dental people, the speech language pathologists, we're all coming to get the ear, nose and throat um, people, Dr. Gimeno is an ENT, um, Dr. Sarush Zaghi is an ENT that helps with uh, not my babies, but a lot of my other kids who have tongue ties and things going on. And then, so we've talked already about cleft lip and palate, the craniofacial abnormalities that can happen in utero in the first trimester. We've talked already about tethered oral tissues and you asked about, yep, there are lip ties and there are buckle ties. They're for real. There's just not a lot of research 
on them. And sometimes they do need to be revised depending on function. That's the most important thing for everything. So we're seeing uh, a lot of what's called a posterior tongue tie or a submucosal tongue tie. And some people differentiate between the two, but we used to just think of anterior tongue ties, which is like the heart-shaped tongue and that kind of thing. But now we're finding ties further back. And <clears throat> what's really interesting is that a lot of these kids with that are eventually diagnosed with posterior submucosal tongue ties, many of them didn't have difficulty breastfeeding, but the anterior tongue tie definitely made a pro, you know, caused a problem with breastfeeding. But the posterior tongue tie inhibits the back and the base of tongue, which is very, very important for swallowing. So I, I first studied swallowing with a woman named Jerry Logeman, and Jerry would do x-rays of people and put a penny um, somewhere on the body so that she could not only see the elevation of the larynx, but she could also see what was happening with the back and base of tongue. And so if that is tied down, that's problematic. So I think we can all agree, regardless of age, adults or peds, we all need visualization of the swallow to know what we are treating. And our sponsors for this month, Endohd, that's ndohd.com forward slash contact. They provide a compact fee system with a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital. ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. It's a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically by speech-language pathologists for speech-language pathologists for conducting fee studies. Endohd can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Additionally, Endohd representatives can help clinicians set up their fees programs. Contact them today at endohd, that's ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. It's also problematic for speech because if you say E, everybody who's listening say E, you'll feel your back of tongue spreading and holding on. And that's the place of dynamic stability for speech. When we speech, when we speak, sorry, it's a little, it's a little late here for me, but that's okay. It's <laughs> later for you. You're fine. You're fine, Di. This is but, great. But when we speak, we have what's called dynamic tongue retraction. And if we don't have that, we don't talk with our tongue stuck back there like that, or you would sound like you have a disorder, like maybe Parkinson's. Uh, but we dynamically stabilize our tongues and retraction. And so I just uh, evaluated a 12-year-old who has what we call a lolling speech pattern. And she has a posterior tongue tie um, that is holding her tongue down. And so when she speaks, her tongue is always in the bottom of her mouth. And so she doesn't sound quite like this, but that's a lolling speech pattern. And we hear that in deaf people sometimes. Um, and we've heard that with children with Down syndrome who don't learn to move their tongues. And so we're, we're really looking at this posterior tie to see where it's coming from. Now, um, a lot of therapists will call me up and including I spoke with uh, Suzanne Morris about this because it's curious, we didn't seem to see, and you know, we've been in kids' mouths, Suzanne's been in kids' mouths for over 55 years. I've been in kids' mouths, babies' mouths for 34 plus years. We didn't really see or notice this posterior tongue tie until recently. So I was speaking with a, a, a very, well, I've speak, spoken with a lot of well-known dentists who do tongue tie releases. And I talk about them in the book, Dr. Martin Kaplan, Dr. Larry Cutlow, Dr. Bobby Harry. Dr. Dr. Cutlow did my son's lip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're lucky. You're in a great area with them there. Dr. Sarush Zaghi, and if I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm missing people, who, Dr. Sherry Sammy. I mean, I could just go on and on. But one of the things, there's going to be a, a big conference in um, Toronto, which I can't make in July. It's the ICAP, I-C-A-P. And um, Dr. Kevin Boyd, another pediatric dentist, a lot of people will be there to talk about some of these issues. Why are we seeing posterior tongue tie now? Were we just missing it before and it was always there? 
or is there something else going on? And that's where you have in your notes and I have in my notes about epigenetic changes. Are we not seeing buck buckle pads or sucking pads developing even at 40 weeks? Because I, I see 40 weekers now who don't have them because we haven't really been using them. You know, we've been doing a lot of bottle feeding since the 50s. So now we have generations of children who have been bottle fed. It's nobody's fault. It's just, do we as a species not have them because we haven't been using them? <laughs> and then with this tongue tie, you know, is part of it because children are lying on their backs for inordinate amounts of time. And so are they getting fascial restrictions in addition to the collagen problem? And is that adding to a posterior tongue tie with the tongue and jaw being held back so much? So I think as Michelle keeps going around and getting more people to do tummy time, the American Academy of Pediatrics promotes tummy time. If we can get parents to do this, you know, maybe we can study those children who have had adequate tum tummy time and compare them to those that may not have had that. We did that at Loyola. We collected thousands of pieces of data on children with Down syndrome. And then we looked for patterns uh, in those children in terms of mouth function and development and compared it you know, to what was in the literature. And so, so one thing we found at Loyola was children with Down syndrome don't seem to have large tongues. They have small jaws. So, and they have low tone tongues. So they appear to have large tongues. And so, I mean, but it was only by us collecting data on every kid we saw <laughs> that we started to really notice that. So I think uh, this needs study and everybody would agree that it needs study because a lot of us didn't see these posts. The first posterior tongue tie I ever saw was my own grandson. And he's now four. And I felt in there and I thought, what is that? because it was extremely tight underneath. And I had never felt that before. So, and I'm in there under baby's tongues all the time. So something is definitely, I think, changing and we don't know quite why it's happening. Um, so there's also mouth breathing and why that's a problem in the handout and uh, sleep disordered breathing. And like I said, Dr. Gimeno and Dr. Huang's article is my very favorite article right now, although I have many favorite articles. Uh, I, it's really nice that we can go through the research and understand why we're seeing things. So for example, missing teeth. So I'm about to go through palatal expansion myself. I have a posterior tongue tie but I've actually compensated for it all my life. I was definitely a bottle fed baby and I was one of those kids that didn't crawl. So <laughs> wow. I was a mouth breather and I have, I was just teasing with the dentist today that I'm going to see that I have long face syndrome. <laughs> so, but I had typical orthodontic work 30 years ago where they took teeth out and they pulled everything back. Well, now that I'm getting older, my airway is getting smaller and smaller. And one of the things that Dr. Gimeno and Dr. Huang talk about is when you have missing teeth, what that does to the overall mouth and airway development. And so what I want now that we're far more advanced than we used to be, I want my palate spread back out and I want my teeth put back in and I want my airway to come back open. So I don't have to manage that all the time, you know? Um, yeah. And that, oh, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, and my daughter, had, she was breastfed and um, she looks great, uh, but she has some problems because she had congenital absence of permanent teeth. And Dr. Gimeno and Huang talk about that in there, what that does if you're missing permanent teeth and, you know, so it's so good we have dental implants <laughs> and all those kinds of things these days. And okay, so um, detrimental oral habits you and I haven't really touched on, but those are things like thumb sucking, passive, 
long-term pacifier sucking. I have pacifier guidelines in the first book based on the research that I found at the time. Babies really should only be using pacifiers to calm and then it should be out of the mouth when they're calm or unless they have uh, chronic reflux, that might be a reason to use a pacifier. Um, SIDS, they found some um, positive effects of pacifier use to keep kids doing their sucking and swallowing and breathing, um, you know, with that, you know, related to the SIDS research a few years ago. Um, but really pacifiers should be going away between like five and 10 months of age. And the same with digit sucking and thumb sucking. And if we introduce mouth development toys, I like the Beckman Tri-Chews, I like Mary Schiavone's baby mouth toys, Arc has some really nice, the baby grabber, um, and they've just developed some new baby mouth toys. But at five to six months of age, children are supposed to be doing discriminative mouthing and they need this oral discrimination for eating, drinking, and speaking. And so a lot of our kids, they're just sucking everything. Um, they're getting pureed foods, they're sucking on bottles and pacifiers, and they're not getting the chewing in. And that's where people who study epigenetics like, um, like Dr. Kevin Boyd um, from Chicago, if you look at his articles, you'll see that years ago, babies didn't have retreated lower jaws. I'm talking about a long time ago. So when we were hunters and gatherers, when they look at the skulls of babies, that we didn't have retreated lower jaws. So the thinking is that a lot of our mouth development problems are coming from the fact that we're not chewing early on. And that's where Jill Rapley's work has really helped people to move forward. Uh, and then, you know, I just think it's a piece of the puzzle and we need to get them chewing throughout the mouth and discriminatively mouthing. So for example, with her, um, with her pineapple or her um, broccoli, when the little pieces come off, then that gives the child a chance to safely discriminate that food when it is in through the mouth. Because as young as five months of age, we can start to see diagonal uh, rotary jaw movement back and forth, which in a chewing like movement, very young. And probably when we were hunters and gatherers, well, here's one thing, mothers carried their babies around in slings. And those babies, according to Ashley Montague, who was an anthropologist, um, those babies might latch on as much as a hundred times a day for comfort as well as sustenance. And then when we were hunters and gatherers, those moms probably chewed up that food <laughs> and then like a bird fed it to the baby, you know? And so babies probably got better textures than all of the purees. And I'll tell you what, I've seen five-year-olds come in here with sucking pads and sucking pads are supposed to go away between four and six months with all the chewing work and discriminative mouthing mouthing throughout the mouth. You know, so kids will do that with spoons. They'll do it with some of the toys I mentioned, you know, but a lot of our kids, they just suck and suck and suck. And now there's pouch foods on top of it. And so they come in sucking and um, that's all they do. And then they come in at five years of age with big sucking pads in their cheeks. But if we do the right jaw work, we can get rid of those pretty quickly. So those detrimental oral habits all have to do with sucking, uh, you know, long-term bottle use, use of spouted cups. Um, so the sippy cup was king or queen for a long time. And now we're seeing people come out with some more reasonable cups, like straw cups that are more appropriate. Um, long-term pacifier use. I've had kids, you know, they should be off the pacifier by 10 months based on the research. Um, and starting to get off the pacifier by five months. So um, thumb and digit sucking, they should be chewing. You know, we don't hopefully suck our thumbs to calm ourselves. <laughs> so we really, uh, we would chew gum or, you know, we chew food. And actually that's the other thing. The child I just, uh, the older child that I was mentioning before who had the terrible posterior tongue tie. Um, 
she would, she, she just would chew, chew, chew pretty much near the front of the mouth. Of course, she didn't have the tongue lateralization or side to side movement to place and collect food because of her, her restriction. Um, but she's only chewing about three times and then gulping and swallowing. And we're supposed to be chewing our food 20 to 25 times because digestion begins in the mouth. And so I've, I've been practicing. I, I, I can now chew a potato chip for 15 chews, but we have a lot of these convenience foods you hardly have to chew. And therapists will call chicken nuggets, um, but not all of them, they're not all this way, but a lot of them are ground meat inside. So the child really doesn't have to do much chewing. So you have the kid that comes in on chicken nuggets and French fries, and neither of those foods really re require a lot of chewing or good jaw work. So I guess the point I wanna make through all of this is, um, and, and when people take my courses, which I've been teaching a long time, I'll, I always say to them, you'll never look at television the same way. You're always gonna be evaluating everybody's jaws. And uh, it's so simple. You know, I often have people come back and say to me, well, what do we do for the jaw? Well, Mary Schiavone created the Chewy Tubes. She created the Jaw Rehab Program. Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson has a wonderful jaw program. We need to choose, and then if you look at the oral facial myofunctional therapists these days, what are they saying? What are the dentists saying? What's the dental new dental diet? Who you know, which we're going to feature on our, our website um, in February? What is the new dental diet? Chew, chew, chew. <laughs> so any of those tubes or anything before you can progress to more, I guess, chewy foods. That's an excellent Is question. That... Chewy tubes, um, you know, Mary, uh, if you hear this, I love the idea of chewy tubes. Um, one of the things that people have trouble with is that they think because they're called chewy tubes that they're children's toys. And that's not at all true. Uh, both the ARC products and chewy tube products are made in the uh, United States uh, by approved materials that can go in the mouth. And so back to your question, it's so funny because mine are sitting over on the sink. Usually I keep them on the desk. I use two red chewy tubes bilaterally because I have jaw problems related to the fact that I'm missing those teeth and everything's been pulled back and I get a lot of jaw tension. If, you, if somebody were looking at me talking through this presentation as you are, you would see every time I say what's called a sibilant sound and Dr. Gimeno and Dr. Huang talk about this <laughs> in their article, every time I say a sibilant sound, which is S-Z, S-H, C-H, all those kinds of things, you'd see a jaw slide to the right. And so, <laughs> and so I use the chewy tubes every day, but Here's the thing, they are, and I use a Mayo Munchie also, which is, was created out of Australia for my jaw work. But that doesn't carry over to food unless you put food in them. So with chewy tubes, one of the things we've done, but Lori Overland um, has, and Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson, they have an even easier way to do this. You can inject your chewy tube with like yogurt and then have the person bite, 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 and a little bit will come out. But then you've got to really clean those chewy tubes really well. And chewy tubes, for me, I feel are really, I, I do dip them in taste and have the tongue follow around and then go to the back molars. And then I ultimately want to work with two chewy tubes, no matter what the age, even if the person's 99, two chewy tubes at the back molar area. The yellow are, of course, smaller and the red are larger and have more input. I keep two red on my desk. I introduce my six month old babies to yellow ones and my 12 month old, if I have them from the beginning, 12 months old to red ones, but you could also have a 99 year old person using red and yellow. The thing about the jaw rehab program and every jaw program is the jaw just moves straight up and down. We don't want a lot of sliding around, but if you put food and this is something I learned from Sarah Johnson and Lori Overland. If you put food in a half straw, so you take, I happen to have this on my desk. You take a straw, you cut it in half, 
and then you take binder clips and you put them on both ends. You could freeze yogurt in here. Or you could you know, put your yogurt in or whatever, a soft substance in with a syringe. And then you can take the end off and have the person bite, 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 bite. Or I was just consulting with someone in Greece and they don't eat a lot of cold foods. So you can just inject the straw with whatever it is, different tastes, uh, as long as it's something that can be put into the straw and have them bite, 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 bite. And then the food goes back to the back molar area and then you can work toward higher and higher textures. I mean, since 1983, when I started being a feeding therapist at the School for the Blind, um, which was really a shock because I'd been in the schools from 1980 to 1983. So it was a total shock to be in, on this feeding team at first. But we used, you know, the, the baby safe feeders that we now have, we used cheesecloth and put foods in there. And then we could give different tastes, different textures. Deborah Beckman uses washed organza. Uh, you know, and now I, my favorite feeder is the Kids Me Small Feeder because all the large feeders are too big for my mouth, but the Kids Me Small Feeder and anything that looks like the Kids Me Small Feeder um, is, is just great. I mean, I have a 21 year old uh, who this summer, he really needed to learn to lateralize his tongue because he had his tongue released. And so, you know, we talked about it because I don't want him to think I'm using, I like age appropriate stuff. So I, I don't want him to think we're using baby things. So I gave him a choice and the kids me feeder. Um, I wish it would be made in a more adult looking way. But that's the beauty of the chewy tubes. They can be used with any age and the half straw can be used with any age until you get the tongue lateralizing and following because that's the other thing. Um, if the tongue doesn't lateralize, you can't place and collect food and you can't clean the sockeye. So all the all between the gums, you know, and the cheeks, all the stuff that collects in there, you know, and so working with adults, you see a lot of piecemeal deglutition and you see food lying around the mouth and that tongue lateralization and awareness in the mouth, very important. So I still do oral massage with my clients. Um, and there's one I will share with anyone. It's in the original textbook. It came from the Maryland School for the Blind. It's pretty systematic. But when I worked on rehab, I had the people do it themselves. If I have an older child, you know, they do it themselves. It's just a matter of getting a little more awareness in there. And then, you know, it, it can be done in less than a minute to get that to happen. This has been wonderful, Di. <laughs> Sorry to talk your ear off, guys. No, I'm like, I mean, I'm just blown away because A, I'm a speech pathologist and B, I'm a mother of a baby with feeding issues. So I just feel completely clueless right now. So thank you. This has been wonderful. Well, you know, you know where to find me. Yes. So, and, and I do online consultations, although I don't highly advertise those because I'm like just one person here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I usually like to do with that is I like to find out what's going on and then help the parent find a therapist in the area. And so I just did this with someone in New Jersey where the therapist, the mom and I, we got on Skype or FaceTime. I don't know which one, one of them. Uh, and Zoom is great, which you, because you can record it. And so, you know, we just got together online and figured out how to move, what, what the best way was to move forward in feeding for this child and, and speech. Um, that's my other area of expertise is motor speech. So I, um, I've been using a program for about 20 years uh, that starts with vowels. And most speech language people aren't taught to um, teach vowels, but I can teach anybody vowels in about five minutes. So, <laughs> or teach you how to teach vowels in five minutes. I, they may not get the vowels in five minutes. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, we just have so much more today than we ever had before. We do, yeah. yeah. And I think what's so fascinating about all this too is that you know, a lot of us specialize in so many things, you know, I'm so far down the dysphagia lane or yes, some people are right, in language, right, but right. I think what's been so interesting about everything you talked about is how it's all so connected and so related. 
right. the feeding issues are connected to the speech issues. And right. so that's, that's it's just been pieces. a big eye opener. Exactly. Yeah. All pieces of a very large puzzle. So when uh, Pam Marshall and I were co-chairs of the Oral Motor Institute during a big controversy that was going on about oral sensory motor work. And, and we really sat down and studied uh, the problem and, and looked at how we might resolve that. And um, so what, what we found was everybody was right. <laughs> oh. and, and, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody had a piece of the puzzle. Um, so we just had to all get our egos out of the way. Um, and, and, you know, we've become, most of us pretty good at that. And not that we, we need ego <laughs> in order to have confidence, but, uh, you know, we, we've been able to, many of us just put aside, um, our narrow thoughts and just get more expansive and bring many of those puzzle pieces together. I love that. I think that's a, a great point to finish on, Di. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So you need Is there to any... get some rest, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I thank you for this opportunity. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? 